questions again here this morning. Um, you are definitely going to want a Bible in your hands for today. We have our work cut out for us. Um, hopefully there's some riches here for us to break open, but um, this is going to be one of these things where we need to swing the sledgehammer a little bit to find the, the riches inside. So um, you're going to need to have your tools handy, and I'm hoping that you're all ready for a little bit of effort. Okay? Am I seeing some nods around this building? Right. Good. Okay. Um, so I'm going to get you into the groove here by starting um, by a, a bit of a stretch. I'm going to try and take you on a journey into the world of English sport. All right. I've been here for three years now. I think that I can do this. <laughs> so buckle your seat belts with me and um, uh, come on this little journey onto one of the fiercest sporting rivalries on planet Earth. Uh, the battle for supremacy between England and Australia in the game of cricket. Now, to understand this story, you will all be relieved to know that you don't need to understand much about the rules of cricket. Suffice to say, cricket is a game that's played by two teams of 11 people each. A cricket match can last for up to five days. Both teams wear identical white uniforms. And the action stops at 4 p.m. sharp every day for the players from both teams to get together and share a cup of tea. That's actually in the rules. <laughs> so that all makes sense. Okay? Good? Yeah, you can all relate to this. Um, cricket is the national sport of England. And uh, anyway, now let's get to the rivalry part of this. Um, in 1882, exactly 140 years ago this year, uh, the Australian national cricket team travelled to London and they beat England for the very first time in one of the most thrilling games of cricket ever play- played, apparently. Starting, on the last day, starting the last day's play, facing almost certain defeat... The Australians, led by uh, their fast bowler Fred Spofforth, eliminated the last four English batsmen for just two runs, and they won the game by the narrowest of margins. And after the game, legend has it that the ball was burned and the ashes were placed in a small urn and taken back to Australia in commemoration of the death of English cricket. I can show you, I can show you the urn. Uh, where are we? Do, do, do. Okay, if you refresh that, Ronnie. Well, would you look at that? It's not there. Now, this is going to be a problem if we can't do this because we need our screen for today. (laughs) I think I know what's wrong, but you're going to need to talk among yourselves for a minute. Or maybe, Rick, are you able to find the... um... Bear with me. (laughs) She doesn't have the address. Yay! Okay, that was all them, that wasn't me. All right, here it is. This is the Ashes Urn. Oh, we don't want to go there yet. Okay. So, um, as you can imagine it, we Brits were not too pleased with this. Uh, And the English team vowed to travel to Australia and win the Ashes back at all costs. And um, ever since, the two teams have played a biannual series for the right to possess this little trophy. Now, when I was a boy, um, about uh, a 25-year period of, had passed when the Ashes uh, battle had been dominated by Australia. But after that period, finally, England started to produce some really good cricketers. We had this guy, Bob Willis, uh, one of the fastest and most accurate bowlers ever to play the game. Uh, David Gower, stylish batsman, made hitting the ball look like some kind of deadly martial art. Um, And then, best of all, we had this guy, Ian Botham, uh, who was a muscular brute with a bat, devastating with the ball in his hand, could do both of those two things all rolled into the same person. But the problem is that they couldn't win. Uh, despite all the talent, after the first two matches of the 1980 Ashes series, one win for Australia and one tie, England were reckoned 500 to 1 outsiders to come back and claim the trophy. But at that point, the team selectors did something unexpected. Ian Botham was dropped as the captain, and leadership of the team was handed to a man called Mike Brearley. Now, Mike Brearley was a good cricketer, 
but he had spent most of his adult life working as an academic. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Newcastle. He wasn't called up to play for England for the first time until he was 34. And in 1980, he was 38, just a little bit younger than me. And uh, everybody considered him washed up for international sport. I don't consider myself washed up for international sport just yet. (laughs) Anyway, for the three remaining games of the series, Brearley was handed the captaincy. Why? Well, because the selectors knew something that the Australians didn't. Mike Brearley had a secret weapon. Mike Brearley wasn't just a professor of philosophy. Mike Brearley was a professor of the game of cricket. Mike Brearley knew more about cricket technically and strategically than probably any other man who's ever picked up a bat. And more than that, he was a student of human nature, I guess, in this kind of nascent science of sports psychology. He was one of the pioneers. So he taught his students how to build up confidence in themselves when they were underperforming, and how to undermine and ultimately cripple confidence in an overperforming opponent. And knowing all of this, England took the wild gamble that everything that Brearley taught in the classroom might actually work on the cricket field. And it did. Brearley coaxed both them back from a near breakdown after losing the captaincy to strike a towering, unbeaten innings of 149 that won the third match in the series. In the remaining matches, Brearley tormented the Australians. He broke their rhythm, undermined their conviction, invented new ways to play the game that exploited every piece of latitude within the rules. And in the end, England won the series 3-1 and reclaimed the ashes. A testament, I guess, to the, uh, the, th- the fact that when theoretical knowledge is wedded to practical application, that can be a truly devastating combination. And that's the way that I want to lead us into our text here in Ephesians this morning. Because as we go further into this letter, as we see more of the riches that it contains, I think we're going to arrive at a point where we can see that real Christianity is like Mike Brearley's captaincy of England. Real Christianity is loaded with glittering, amazing, technical insights about God and his work in the world. But it will not allow those insights to become some museum piece entombed in a seminary or in some ghastly catechism class with no practical application. Real Christianity has the guts to take those insights and believing that they're real, to go out and confront the toughest, most exposed, real world situations imaginable. Situations where victory looks almost completely improbable and then to watch as God works through them to change the game. Now that's what I face. I don't know whether that's what you face. But if you're interested in knowing what that looks like when the gospel goes into those scenarios and actually moves them and changes, shape, changes their shape, then listen as we go through what we have here this morning because I think it's powerful. Um, so stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. And Ronnie, you can just shut the screen down for a minute, thanks. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God, through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, that's our passage this morning. So take a seat. And let's pray together as we begin. God in heaven, we are thirsty for the kind of change in our lives and in our own hearts that your word tells us is possible. Uh, God, we believe that you have not just given us these amazing lofty ideas um, for the sake of um, uh, spiking interest in our brains, Lord, but that you want to see us reconciled to our neighbors. You want to see us getting to know you better, or do you want to see things which are blockages and points where we're stuck, broken through. You want to see uh, us becoming more like Christ. And so we pray that boldly this morning, Lord God, knowing that that's your will, and we know that when we pray in your will, we have the confidence that you will answer. So work in every heart. God, help us see how you would change us and shape us through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So this is another one of these wonderful but daunting sections of the Bible, isn't it? There are riches on display here, uh, but it's not immediately obvious how we're going to get at them. So as we've done with previous passages in Ephesians, what we're going to do here is try and step back from it a little bit, strip it down uh, so that we can see how all the different components really fit together. Now we're helped by the fact that our text today begins with this word, therefore, That world tells us, doesn't it, that in Paul's mind, everything that follows on from there is a logical consequence of what's just gone before. And uh, if you keep your Bible open and look at the end of the passage that I just read, you'll find that we have something similar there as well. Just as our section of the text begins with that linking word, therefore, the next section of the text, starting at chapter 3, verse 1, begins with more linking words, for this reason. So you can see a ball is being passed into our text and it's being passed out of our text at the end. Now when I was reading this through, that uh, little set of linking words in chapter 3 verse 1 really kind of made me prick up my ears for this reason. Um, Because we've heard that before, haven't we? In the second sermon in this series, uh, we heard Paul using that phrase uh, back in chapter 1. If you flip back to chapter chapter 1 verse 15, you'll see it. Where Paul says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So for this reason, says Paul, I pray. That was the point in the first chapter where Paul transitioned out of that list of blessings he unloaded, you might remember. And out of the application of those blessings to the Jews and Gentiles in his audience, Uh, And it's the point where he begins to pray for the Ephesians, that they might get to know God better by living those blessings out. And if you look carefully at the end of our section now, so at chapter 3 verse 1, you'll see that he's just about to do exactly the same thing. Uh, He says, for this reason, and then uh, slightly confusingly, he goes off on a little bit of a tangent for a few verses, explaining who he is for the benefit of any readers of this letter who uh, don't know Uh, his background and his calling to the Gentiles. But then in chapter 3, verse 14, if you look at that, you'll find that he gets back to the plot. And he repeats the introductory formula for this reason, and then he goes on. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. So do you see then that we have two sections in this first uh, big piece of Ephesians, the first three chapters, which end in exactly the same way. After chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, Paul gets on his knees and says, for this reason, I pray. And then after chapter 2, verses 1 through 22, once again, Paul is on his knees saying, for this reason, I pray. So let's get that up on the screen here. Okay, so overview of Ephesians, it has six chapters. We're going to zoom in on the first three. Here they are. And what we find is that they break up like this into two major blocks. We have a first block which concludes with a prayer. Then we have a second block, which concludes with a prayer. Everybody good with that? Great. Okay, we'll keep that up there. So um, now what we're going to do is we're going to look a bit more closely at the blocks themselves. 
Our text today, in chapter 2, begins halfway through that second block, chapter 2, verse 11. And as we saw, it starts with the word, therefore, which indicates a significant kind of shift in gears in Paul's mind. What sort of gear shift is it? Well, as we learned with Matthew last week, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul set out to tell us where each one of us who is a Christian came from and how God changed us. Do you remember that? Before God, each one of us was dead in transgressions and sins. Not just in need of moral improvement, not just in need of the end of semester morality review class. No, we were dead. The delicate vase of God's image in us, that gift of knowing and representing him to the world, lay broken in a thousand pieces on the floor. That's what happens when we try to be God. And all that remained for us, said Paul in chapter 2 verse 3, was God's wrath. But then Paul tells us that something extraordinary happened. God himself intervened from his side of the courtroom. After pronouncing the sentence... The judge, as it were, uh, strode across to the dock and wrote out a personal check for the entire debt that we owe. We deserve wrath, but we've been saved by grace. Now, in our section that started at verse 11, Paul takes that truth for a walk. He reiterates the content of verses 1 to 10, but now he wants to ground it in the Ephesians' own personal experience. He wants them to know what salvation by grace looks like in practice. And so he shifts gears from what you might call the vertical focus of chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 where we're looking up to God and we're thinking about our status before him and he opens up this new horizontal focus encouraging us to think about how the gospel affects our relationships with each other. He moves the emphasis from the personal and the individualistic you know where it's all God and me and me and God Uh, And he takes it to this corporate emphasis uh, where he's thinking now about how the gospel affects our lives as brothers and sisters, as a community. So do you see then that that second block has these two pieces, uh, the first of which runs from chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, and that's primarily concerned with doctrine. It's vertical. God and me, me and God. But the second part, which is our passage for today, is primarily concerned with application. It reiterates the ideas of the first part, uh, but now uh, the focus is horizontal and corporate. In the second part, Paul wants us to see how all that doctrinal stuff works out in practice in our relationships with our neighbors. So let's get that on the screen here. Okay, does that make sense? So the first block divides into those two pieces, a vertical piece me and God, a horizontal piece, me and my neighbor, and then he goes into prayer. All right, so now we get to the fun part. Um, When you look at a passage of scripture like this and you see two blocks of text that both end in exactly the same way, in this case, both block one and block two end with a prayer, then it should make us wonder whether the blocks themselves aren't similar. You know, it's a bit like when you're driving along the highway and uh, you pass a couple of trucks which have exactly identical cabs. It makes you suspect, doesn't it, that they have exactly identical contents in the trailer. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. Just as both blocks one and blocks two end with a prayer, uh, it also turns out that blocks one and blocks two have an identical internal structure. Both of them begin with a vertical and then end with a horizontal. So just briefly turn back with me to chapter one and I'll show you. At the beginning of chapter 1, it's just like the beginning of chapter 2. Paul is in the business of laying out doctrine. In chapter 1, you'll remember, it was a list of blessings. So he dives in there, doesn't he, I think in verse 3, saying, here are all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Number 1, chosen for holiness. Number 2, predestined for adoption. Number 3, we're redeemed. Number 4, we've been introduced to the mystery of God's will. And then just like the beginning of chapter 2, we can see that all that is vertical, can't we? It's all about me and God, God and me. But then look what Paul does immediately afterwards. Starting at chapter 1, verse 11, he switches gears. He takes that final blessing of the list, where Paul has made known to us the mystery of his will, and he applies it horizontally to me and to my neighbor. He says the fact that all things in heaven and on earth will be united under Christ means that you Jews and you Gentiles are both united in this Ephesian church. 
He wants his readers to discover the meaning of the blessings in the practical, real-world context of their church life. So that means that we can complete our diagram here. Okay, that's the first three chapters of Ephesians. So we basically have it down now. We know what Paul's argument looks like. He goes vertical, horizontal, prayer. Vertical, horizontal, prayer. Now that may all seem a little bit abstruse, but I want to show you how important what we've just done is. I think it contains some profound lessons for us as believers. You see, it's striking, isn't it, that for Paul, the vertical must always have an application in the horizontal, and the horizontal must always be derived from the vertical. Let me repeat that. For Paul, the vertical, the God and me, me and God, doctrinal stuff, must always have an application in the horizontal, my relationships with my neighbors and my work colleagues and my family. And likewise, the horizontal must always be derived from the vertical. See, Paul was a complete master of all of this vertical stuff. He knew his doctrine. He studied. He knew the blessings that God had given to his people. He knew what they revealed about God's character. Paul understood the human problem. He knew why it was that we're so driven to seek pleasure and status and knowledge, and yet we're so frequently disappointed and anxious. He could explain what it meant to be spiritually dead. He could explain the amazing solution. Paul put three different lenses on the doctrine of salvation by grace in a single verse in chapter 1. He could explain the life-changing difference between being saved by good works and being saved for good works. But for Paul, all of that vertical stuff was not enough. Paul wasn't content just to stand up his doctrine like the perfectly manicured car in the front window of the dealership that's never turned a wheel in anger. Paul was determined to drive it. In fact, Paul was determined to thrash the wheels off it. Paul was determined to take the truths that he knew and live them out in the church and on his street corner. Paul wasn't satisfied to know that the gospel was life-changing. He wanted to see it changing lives. And so his vertical knowledge, all the truths about his relationship to God, led immediately into horizontal application. It changed the way that he lived with his fellow believers. It changed the decisions that he made. It changed the way that he used his time. And that's a challenge for many of us, isn't it? Think how many sermons we've heard between us. It would be a slightly terrifying exercise to tally that up, I think. Think how many Bible studies we've been to between us. How many times have we heard truths that have potential to completely revolutionize a human life and send it blasting after God? Uh, Things which can do that, even if they're heard only once, and yet we've heard them many, many times. But how many of those truths have really found horizontal application in our lives? How much of what we know is really working its way out in the way that we live with our families and with our neighbors? How much of it are we really allowing to affect our decisions about how we spend our money, about how much confidence we're willing to put in God's promises? How much of our vertical has a matching horizontal? That would be interesting to take in inventory, wouldn't it? Is it 50%? Is it 10%? Is it 5? But the same thing is equally true in reverse. It wasn't just the fact that knowledge of the vertical had to find a way out in Paul's horizontal relationships. No, what he did... I'm sorry... No, what he did in his horizontal relationships also had to have a basis in his vertical knowledge. Do you see that in the text? All the material about living as the church in this first half of Ephesians is daisy-chained back into truths about God. In fact, as we go on through the book and we reach chapters 4 through 6, we'll find that all of Paul's advice there, the things that we're so familiar with about marriage and family and employment and spiritual gifts, is all built off the foundation of Paul's doctrine. Paul doesn't seem to have had or to have wanted any free-floating compartments in his life where he didn't have a good gospel reason for doing what he was doing. All of his horizontal was based off his vertical. And that too is a massive challenge for us, I think. If I look at my life, at my use of time and my money and gifts, at my marriage, at my parenting, at my friendships, at my planning for the future... I'm ashamed to say that there are tons of things that I do that don't have this kind of grounding. 
Much of what I do, I do simply because it works. But that's just pragmatism. That's not Christianity. Much of what I do, I do because it feels good or because I think it's going to feel good. But that's just hedonism. That's not Christianity. Much of what I do, I do because everybody else does it. But that's just practical humanism. That's not Christianity. Much of what I do, I do because it's the easy option. But that's just laziness. That's not even an ism. Certainly not Christianity. (laughs) Paul wants us to have a reason for our horizontal. Paul dares us to believe that the gospel of Jesus is so comprehensive that it informs everything. He has no time for a vision of the world that says the gospel is just for salvation but not for life. He has no time for a vision of the world that says the gospel is just for the bookcase. And that's why this whole passage got me thinking about Mike Brearley. Because that was the whole story of England's Ashes victory in 1980, wasn't it? The story of the vertical being ventured into the realm of the horizontal. And the horizontal being based entirely on the vertical. Brearley took his theoretical knowledge and accepted the challenge of bringing it to the cricket pitch. None of it could be abstract information anymore. It wasn't enough for it to be intellectually impressive or original anymore. It had to work on live TV with every sports fan in England watching. But the team also had to lay down their horizontal, didn't they? It wasn't okay anymore to say, oh, we do this because it works. We do it this way because it's easy or because it comes naturally. Every piece of their game, every move, every gesture had to be brought under Brearley's direction as part of his master plan for beating Australia. Just as he dared to apply his vertical to their horizontal, they had to be willing to submit their horizontal to his vertical. But when they did it, they blew the Australians off the pitch. And that's what we're called to do as Christians, to take our doctrine and get it dirty. And that's what we're going to see Paul do in this section of the text. Paul wanted the Ephesians to apply the truths that he set out in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, to an experience which is just as relevant and challenging today as it was when Paul first wrote this. Paul wanted to apply it to our experience of exclusion and estrangement and alienation, division and hostility towards God and towards each other. In the churches of this region, Paul knew that God was drawing people together who had all sorts of bad history with each other. Jews and Gentiles had been thrown together into one community. But these guys have been the butt of each other's jokes since childhood. You get a bit of a flavour for this in verse 11 if you look. When a Gentile walked up the street, the Jews would look out of their windows and say, here comes another one of those uncircumcised people setting a bad example to our children. And then when the Jews went to the shops, you get the sense that the the Gentiles were talking behind their hands too. This neighborhood is getting full of these circumcised people acting like they're better than everybody else. But now these people found themselves sitting next to each other in church. Can you imagine it? Well, actually, maybe we can imagine it. It probably isn't a Jew and Gentile thing here this morning. But I imagine there are all sorts of other situations where we feel divided from those around us and those close to us. We're experts at forming cliques, aren't we? We gravitate towards people like ourselves and shut out people who aren't. Very politely, we seek out the people who look like we look and shop where we shop. We set up small groups for people who are all at our life stage, conveniently. And we put ourselves at arm's length from people who are different from us, just as Linda was saying. And we experience division and tension, even with the people who we do allow to get close. How many of us as husbands and wives here this morning carry some kind of resentment inside us, brooding on things maybe that our partner said or didn't say, or uh, things that they did or maybe we hope they would have done? How many of us as children feel divided from our parents? Or as parents feel divided from our children by past offences or by misunderstandings? How many of us carry a sense of betrayal by others? Or the knowledge that we ourselves maybe have betrayed others? This is the place to which Paul wants to take all this lofty, shiny doctrine from verses 1 to 10. Right into the mud. 
right into the thick of it, right into the environment for which, in fact, it was always intended. But before he plows in, he wants to make sure that we have a good understanding of what we're driving here. So look at what he does in verses 12 and 13. Remember, for Paul, a real Christian is someone who works their way through the practical challenges of life in the light of the truths that they know about God. Their horizontal is always derived from their vertical. And here you can actually watch him do it. Before he dives into all this hostility that exists between Jews and Gentiles in verse 14, he pauses to make a connection back to the doctrinal foundation that he laid in verses 1 to 10. He picks up the truths about what we were, what God did, and why God did it, exactly what Westy preached for us last week. And he builds a bridge from there to the relational challenge that he now has in front of him. In verse 1 of the chapter, uh, you remember Paul said, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Well, now in verse 12, he returns to that same point about what they were. You were separate from Christ, says Paul, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. The phrase separate from Christ is the key line there. And the two clauses that come after it kind of deepen and clarify our understanding of what it means. The word Christ means anointed one. And it carries with it the idea of royalty. So to be included in Christ is to have Jesus as our king. To be part of his kingdom. But to be separate from Christ is to be outside his kingdom. And that idea will hopefully have an impact on us having just walked through our king series, right? Do you remember uh, the joy of David's people, for example, when he defeated Goliath uh, and led them to victory over the Philistines? Well, to be separate from Christ is to be the Philistines. To be separate from Christ is to be looking at David from across the battlefield, watching him defeat our champion and then start coming after us. To be separate from Christ is like living under King Ahab. Do you remember that one? Dragged this way and that by self-centeredness and irresponsibility with life spiraling further and further out of control. To be separate from Christ is to be in a bad, bad spot. To be excluded from citizenship in Israel and to be a foreigner to the covenants of the promise is to have no stake in God's kingdom. I don't know about you, but as we went through the King series and as we learned that God is at work in his world to set apart a people for himself, to live in his special place, And that he plans to bless them with his presence and his rule. My heart just burned to be part of that. I wanted to be part of that band of brothers and sisters. I long for the security of knowing that God has our little family in his hands. I crave the knowledge that God is with us and the privilege of having him lead us along. But Paul wants us to know that none of us have that by right. None of us are born with that. Left to our own devices, we are not included We're excluded. We're without hope and without God in the world. And in Paul's mind, you see those two things go together. If we don't have God, we don't have hope. In verses 1 to 10, Paul explained what being without God really means. When we push God aside and say to ourselves, you know, I think I can do a better job of my life, better job of running my show than God can, which is exactly what the Bible tells us every single one of us has done. Well, we receive the consequences. God is the source of all life. If we reject him and put ourselves in his place, all we can expect is death. God is the definition of all goodness. If we reject him and put ourselves in his place and we tell the world that the bad things that we do are better than the good things that God does, all we can expect is punishment. And now in our text, we see the natural consequences of all of that. Hopelessness. If we reject God and put ourselves in his place, we have no reason to look forward to the future anymore. Controlling the future is part of what it means to be God. So if we say, oh, thanks very much, God, uh, but move over, I'm taking the reins from here. Guess what? We now have the job of controlling the future. And the problem is, we can't do it. We like to think we can. So we start off optimistically thinking that our talents or our looks or our family or where we were educated or our network is going to make a way around every obstacle. But in the end, life shows us that we are not in control. 
And so we're left without hope. Without God, we have no basis for believing that things in the future will work out. The truth about the world, uh, about a world in which God is not in control, is that it's random, it's futile. It just develops through a series of lurching forward steps and unplanned reverses. It has no interest at all in our dreams or the dreams of our neighborhood or our families. So if we're flirting with atheism or agnosticism here this morning, we need to understand this. If we really were atheists or agnostics, we would still be human beings. So we would still try to comfort each other when things go wrong with the words, don't worry, everything will be okay. But it would be a lie. Without God, we have no right to say those words. We have no power to fulfill them. Without God, everything won't be okay. Without God, is, to be without God is to be without hope. And all of that leads naturally into our alienation from one another. If every one of us is trying to be God, of course we won't get along. Once again, it just flows naturally from the role that we're trying to usurp. When God tells us what being God looks like, uh, he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. God is unique. He is the supremely important center point of all existence. And if I am convinced, knowingly or unknowingly, that I am God, then I believe that I am the supremely important center point of all existence. And if you are convinced that you are God too, well, then we have all the makings of thermonuclear war. <laughs> and now we paper over all of this, don't we, by choosing to hang out with people who are compatible with us. Uh, we associate with people whose vision of being God is uh, sufficiently similar to ours that we can coexist. But the problem with that kind of compatibility is that it's only skin deep, isn't it? That's the story of marriage, isn't it, folks? Those of us who've been married for a while. We focus so intensely on compatibility when we're searching for a spouse. But in reality, once we're married, we will never be more hurt or irritated or challenged in life than by this person that we worked so hard to ensure that we were compatible with. It's true. Why? Because there isn't room for more than one God in the universe. So get out of my universe, neighbor. Get out of my universe, wife. That's the human problem. That's where all of us began. We were separate from Christ. We were our own kings. We were our own gods. And as a result, all of our relationships, like tinderboxes, kind of primed to explode. But now in, verses, in verse 13, Paul tells us that things have changed. In Christ Jesus, we who were once far away from God have been brought near to God through the blood of Christ. And now look at verses 14 to 19 as Paul brings this, the glorious gospel truth that he's just uh, kind of stood up there blazing into the realities of all of our bad choices and our broken relationships. In verse 14 he tells us that Jesus himself has become our peace. Now what does that mean? Well let me try and illustrate that with a diagram. Um, if we just get the screen back up here. The situation that Paul has just described with human beings separated from Christ and determined to be gods themselves is a situation which uh, kind of creates walls between us. So let's just get this up here. Okay, so we'll start with a wall. Yep, it's going to work. Um, and then we'll have someone over here. Oh, she's only got one eye. It's really... It's a, Bugs me when that happens. There we go. Okay. Give her a nice pair of heels. Great. Um, and then over this side, we need a matching gentleman. He can have a nice stereotypical spiky haircut. He looks a bit sad though, doesn't he? Oh, well. Um, put the shorts on. It's the summer. Perfect. Okay. Um, so you can see there's a wall between us imposed by this reality of who we are, that we are in search of being God ourselves. Now in Ephesus, of course, uh, the wall that was kind of relevant there was ethnic. The church was divided into these Jewish and Gentile groups, uh, with each person looking at the other with suspicion and pent-up hurt from the past. But what Paul is going to teach us here applies just as much to the things that might be dividing us today. Whatever the presenting issue... The timeless truth that Paul wants us to see 
is that our efforts to break that wall down are thwarted by what we are. The problem is not so much the walls themselves, the cliques that have formed and the offences that have been caused and the harsh words that have been said. The problem is what lies behind the walls. It's us. If deep down inside, each one of us believes that we are God, then there is no way that we can come to a position of lasting or stable peace with each other. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If that's what I'm trying to replace... Everyone else will ultimately have to get out of my way. But that's not how things remain if we have Jesus, is it? The text tells us that Jesus has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Now, what does all that mean? Well, Paul wants us to take our eyes off of each other for a moment and think about uh, the way God has changed our relationship to him. Our start point looks like this, if we get God on the screen here. So God can be the big crown. And the start point looks just the same, with walls between each of us and him. Okay. Our determination to be gods necessarily pushes the real God out of the picture. We were separated from Christ. We were excluded without hope and without God in the world. That's what Paul said. But now Paul tells us that we who were once far away have been brought near. He tells us that Jesus set aside the law with its commandments and regulations in his own flesh. He's talking about the cross there. He's telling us that Jesus found a way to annihilate the enmity that existed between God and human beings. How? Well, we talked about this a bit in the King series too. Do you remember how the Kings taught us that we have a choice to make between two different representatives? We can be represented by Adam or we can be represented by Jesus. And as we follow the lives of the Kings, we see pictures of what those two different representatives look like. Most importantly, we see a picture of the way our lives are bound up with theirs. Do you remember that mantra as we went through the series? As the king goes, so go the people. Now, of course, with the kings of the Old Testament, that's only a picture. You know, when the fortunes of the people went up, when David was faithful, didn't mean every person who was ruled by David was suddenly counted faithful by God. When the fortunes of the people went down under Ahab because Ahab was unfaithful, It didn't mean that every person ruled by Ahab was counted unfaithful by God. But with the actual representatives to whom the kings point, Adam and Jesus, this binding together of the people and the representative is much more radical. And that's what Paul is getting at here, I think. The miraculous truth is that if we trust Jesus, when he died, we died. Our lives of rejecting God and attempting to be God were brought to court, sentenced to death, dragged out and executed in Christ. And perhaps more miraculous still, when he came back to life, we came back to life too. As the king goes, so go the people. And so do you see, if that crazy idea that's kind of splurged all through the Bible is actually true, we are done with the law now. The law has no jurisdiction over anyone beyond the death sentence, has it? You ever seen someone retried who's already been killed? And if we are in Christ, that is now our situation. The sentence has been passed on us and executed. But because our lives are bound to Jesus' life, we have emerged intact on the other side. And so the law is set aside for us by Jesus' death. It no longer applies to us. It's done its work. And that means that we have to modify our diagram, doesn't it? When we put God on here, we saw walls between us and him. But thanks to Jesus, that part of the equation is now radically changed. So let's just get rid of these. Okay. If you look at verses 19 and 20. Earlier in the passage, Paul told us that the Ephesians were separate from Christ. But now he tells us, that they have, they, Christ has now become their foundation. 
Earlier in the passage, Paul told the Ephesians that they were excluded from citizenship, didn't he? But now he tells them because of Jesus, they're citizens. Earlier in the passage, Paul told the Ephesians that they were foreigners to the covenants and the promise. But now here he tells them that because of Jesus, they're members of God's household. So instead of seeing walls here now, what do we see? We see God, don't we? We have a clear, unobstructed view. Does that make sense? We're welcomed into friendship with him because of all that we because all that we were and all that we've done has been swept off the table and we found acceptance with Christ. And what Paul wants us to see is that that now has profound implications for our relationships with our neighbors. See, if this person over here has also found forgiveness and new life in Jesus, do you see that the wall between them doesn't matter anymore? We no longer have to look through that wall anymore, do we? If all that hurt and damage is still there, it still doesn't make any difference. Because if this person has a clear, unobstructed view of God, and this person has a clear, unobstructed view of God, these people have a clear, unobstructed view of each other. So let's just draw that on. Do you see that? It's really messy, but they can see each other across there. And if the price of sweeping all that we were and all that we have done off the table, sorry, if, um, if the way in which that was achieved by sweeping all that we are and all that we've done off the table, do you see that we now see each other on completely level ground? So I have no reason to talk to you anymore on the assumption that I'm any better than you, and you have no reason to talk to me on the assumption that you're any better than me. I have no reason to hold your feet to the fire for something that was your fault anymore, even if it was your fault. You have no reason to hold my feet to the fire for things that were my fault. The whole reason that I can see you at all, and the whole reason that you can see me at all, is that all of that on the cross has been completely taken onto Jesus' shoulders. It's not our issue anymore. And you see that that radically changes our view of other people, even if they aren't Christians. Because you might say, oh, well, you know, this looks like a great way of reconciliation with someone who's really trusting in Jesus. But the person who's hurt me is so bad, I doubt that they're really a Christian at all. Hmm. But even if the person that we've fallen out with is still separated from God, and by the way, there's no way that we can actually judge that, our perspective on that person is still radically changed, isn't it? Because if I have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ... I now look at my neighbor with God's eyes, don't I? And when I do that, maybe I do still see ingratitude and bad decisions. But the way that all of that appears to me now is as a mirror of what I once was. And so it's a motivator now to prayer and to forgiveness. So do you see that in Paul's mind, the amazing doctrine that we have been reconciled to God leads necessarily to reconciliation with our neighbors. The vertical applies directly to the horizontal. The state of the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles in this world of Ephesus was a division like the Berlin Wall, but the gospel destroyed that historic division. All those years of mutual suspicion and resentment were just blown away by the realization that the rights that each group had been standing on and the unmet expectations that each group had allowed themselves to dwell on were completely voided by the cross. The Jewish Ephesians and the Gentile Ephesians were rescued from the belief that they were God. And they realized that they weren't owed what they thought they were owed. And they didn't deserve the things that they thought they deserved. And that realization applies equally to us. When we try to be God, we see exclusion, estrangement, alienation, division, hostility all around us, don't we? We see walls. But when God takes his rightful place in our lives, he breaks down those walls that divide us and builds us, together with the people from whom we were once estranged, into a new united structure with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The power of the gospel takes broken marriages and strained friendships and divided families. And as Paul says at the very end of the chapter, did you notice, it builds them into temples. And that's an amazing idea, isn't it? Because a temple in the Bible is a place where heaven and earth meet. It's holy ground. 
And it may not seem all that logical to us that the places where all our grudges and suspicions have built up, our botched relationships, our indifference to the lonely, that those things are the raw materials from which a temple could be constructed. But that's the scale of the victory that God has in mind when he takes the glorious vertical of the gospel and applies it to the grubby horizontal of real human life. God's intention is that the places in our lives where we have experienced and inflicted hurt might not just be healed, but that they might become places where we can find him and be forgiven by him and where other people can find him too. So as we finish here, what I wanted to do was just have us, uh, each of us individually, get some time just to think that through. So we're going to spend two or three minutes in quiet before I pray. Um, I just wonder whether as we're hearing Paul talk about the way that the gospel applies to these situations where we are estranged from people or where we just set ourselves at a distance from people, maybe as Linda was saying, um, or maybe very you know, present situations today, just where we feel that we're blowing it with someone close to us or where we're you know, in uh, broken fellowship with a neighbor or a family member. Let's just uh, sit on our own here and consider prayerfully what we ought to do about those things in the light of what we've just heard. That if we are brought near to God by the cross, then all of that stuff that we're holding is not ours to hold. It's Jesus' to hold and he died to remove it. So let's just think quietly together before we pray. Heavenly Father, we just lift before you the things that we've named here in the quiet. Um, We lift up to you the um, circumstances in our lives where we're conscious that we have done damage and where we have been damaged. Um, God, where we have just held ourselves aloft, aloof from other people, not realizing that we are all sinners before you and that we are brought to a point of complete equality by the cross. Jesus, we really thank you so much for the truth that we have nothing of our own to stand on because it's that truth that sets us free. God, it means that when we stand before the Father, there'll be nothing to pay. So help us to live like it. God, we pray that the horizontal truth of that amazing vertical would be realized in us, that we might live like those who believe that they are no longer held to account for the things that they have done. Help us not to work in our hearts, work in our friendships and our marriages, we pray in Jesus' name.